passage that we're going to look at together today from the book of Revelation may help to quickly remind you why it is that a great deal of the time many of us try and keep our distance from that particular book of the Bible. It is, after all, filled with such strange sights and sounds by such odd figures and phenomenon that it's easy to want to simply turn back to the more familiar pages of the Gospels or the other narratives of Scripture. But I'd like to try to unpack with you some of the meaning of this rich imagery today and then leave you with just two practical applications that my hope is will be of help to us in our ongoing life from this moment on. In Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John is again addressed. He is addressed by the same voice that had spoken to him at the start of the book. It is the voice of none other than Jesus the Christ, who speaks by the power of his Spirit to John, who is exiled even then on the Alcatraz of the ancient world, the island of Patmos off of the western coast of Turkey. John, like many other Christians, is under a period of severe persecution. And in the earlier part of the narrative of Revelation, he has been given some specific instructions from the Lord to impart to the seven churches of that region. But now Jesus speaks again. And he calls John away from the earthly plane and into the heavenly realms. And John is given suddenly the capacity for a vision into the glory that lies at the heart of the universe. Into the glory that is that towards which history itself is moving and the glory that is to this day meant to shape all of our lives. The Apostle puts it this way. After this I looked, and before me there was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. In other words, he was transported in a spiritual vision vision rather than physically moved. And there before me... And he goes on to describe what he saw. What follows thereafter is a view of heaven that is probably not a great deal like modern-day conceptions of that place. It certainly is not the kind of wide-open playground of personal fantasy and self-actualization and imagination that we meet in, in What Dreams May Come, that recent film. Nor is it that soft and diffuse, misty, cloud-like world we remember from Heaven Can Wait and other beloved films on that theme. The entire character of this place that John is describing draws its life from the reality at the center of Heaven. From the fact that at the center of the heavenly realm is a throne. I saw a throne, said John. 
with someone sitting on it. Now the one who sits there also bears no resemblance to some of the popular conceptions of the inhabitants. We don't encounter George Burns with a cigar. We don't meet a a fusion of Zeus and Santa Claus like sometimes God is pictured. For as Leighton Ford once put it, God really is God. He's not just applying for the job. And in trying to describe the staggering wonder of this God, the amazing glory of who this God is, normal characters and characteristics and and even categories fail to do justice, and so only symbolic language can begin to get at the truth. We're told, for example, that this one on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Jasper and Carnelian were two highly treasured gemstones in the ancient world, stones that were revered for their absolute purity of color, for their beauty, and for the brilliant facets that gave off the light. Jasper and Carnelian were, interestingly enough, two of the gemstones that were embedded in the breastplate of the high priest of Israel, the one who went to make sacrifice and intercession on behalf of the people before a holy God. We hear as well that a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. The vision is one that has parallels with a vision formerly had by the prophet Ezekiel in Old Testament times. And Ezekiel spoke of it this way, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, he said. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, said Ezekiel. It is said that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, symbolic of the immense power and mystery of the one who sits there in that place and occupies that spot of supreme authority. And the visions that we have of all of these pyrotechnics bring to mind the the memory of how lightning and thunder and cloud descended long ago on Mount Sinai as God delivered his law to the prophet Moses. Then we're told that before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. And the lamps, we're told, are the seven spirits. The spiritual light of the seven churches of ancient Asia Minor. But also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now it is said by some historians that at the throne of King Solomon. There was also a a pedestal 
of glass, a vast expanse of glass so highly polished that it was said to appear like a sea at the king's feet. In fact, so powerful was this appearance that the story is told of the first arrival of the Queen of Sheba to visit the king. She said when stepping towards the glass to have lifted her skirts that her feet might not get wet. Some scholars think that this whole image in Revelation is trying to communicate to us that just as David, the great king of Israel, got his true authority from the one who now sits on this heavenly throne, so also the great and wise and wealthy King Solomon received his wisdom and resource from that same Lord who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we're told that surrounding that throne there were a series of lesser thrones, 24 of them in number, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and, and had crowns of gold on their heads. You may recall from earlier studies in this book that the ancient temple at Jerusalem had also been attended by rank of 24 different divisions of priests. And the idea here, I suppose, is that those who attend the heavenly throne now play something of that priestly role as a servant of the great high priest who occupies the throne. And they're said to be dressed in white, a symbol of purity, of forgiveness, to wear a crown of gold, a symbol of reward and authority. Those are two of the various attributes promised in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation to those Christians who overcame. To those Christians who stood up for their faith in the face of persecution. Who remained faithful to the truth in a time of, of doctrinal error. And who stood fast in righteousness in a time of terrible moral confusion. These were the challenges confronting the believers at that time, and perhaps just as powerfully the believers of ours. In this way, these 24 elders can be regarded as symbolic of the triumphant servants of God in every generation, the saints of his church. Now, this may or may not seem to you very interesting. You've just taken a good dose of history and of biblical exegesis and a little bit of insight into the literature of the Old and New Testament. But some of you listening in just have to be wondering about now, when's this going to end? What in the world does any of this have to do with life today? Well, let me try and suggest, if I may, just two thoughts that you might consider taking with you. 
And both of them involve taking just a little closer look at some of the characteristics and behaviors of some of the other unusual beings gathered with those elders around the throne. John says that in the center around the throne, the vision is even closer to the throne than the surrounding elders, were four living creatures. Only they weren't like anything we've seen in a National Geographic episode or Animal Planet or a zoo. They were covered with eyes. In front and in back, John says, and each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Now, what do you make of all these eyes? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I think we're being given here a symbolic anatomical indication of a very real spiritual orientation. I think we're being told by the presence of all of these organs of sight that these beings around the throne just can't get enough of the one who sits there. It is as if they have developed and externalized an extraordinary capacity for attentiveness to him, for constant and careful and intense scrutiny of and focus upon him and everything in their outlook, it seems. Every dimension of themselves seems oriented around the idea of trying to take in more of him, more of his beauty and his purity, more of his wisdom and power, more and more of each and every facet, every brilliant re reflecting point of the amazing combination of attributes that together constitute what the scriptures call the glory of God. The glory of God is the sum total of all of the attributes of him. Of his eternal quality, of his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, his goodness, his mercy. And these beings around the throne are, are totally, utterly, and wholly fixated upon encountering that glory in its fullness. Is that true of you? Is that true of you and me? I think sometimes that it's not fully so. It seems to me that, at least in seasons of our life, we 
we really only gaze at Christ with one eye at a time. And sometimes just a narrow slit of an eye at that. I think that if we could see him in all of his glory with all that we are, we'd find ourselves almost helplessly influenced by him. But sometimes our relationships with others suffer because we focus with one eye on his rugged truth and his high standards while our other eye misses the facet of his redeeming grace. And our character and behavior doesn't change as much as as in our best moments we long for it to, perhaps, because we've we've got at least one good eye on the tremendous patient love he has for us, but we turn a blind eye to his holiness and his challenge. And we become overly dour beings during seasons of our lives because we get this very clear fix on the facet of his disciplined nature, but not on his freedom. And we obsess on his majesty and we lose sight of his joy. And and we find ourselves often wearing ourselves and each other out because we see and learn from his capacity for creative work, but we miss out somehow that there's also this other capacity for recreative rest that Jesus models. Yet this is the reality to which Revelation points us. Jesus calls us to look him full in the face. To behold his glory. To take in more and more of him. To be shaped and renewed by God's glory. And what I want to ask you today is what facet of his nature could he be calling you to see more fully as you go forward in this new year? We're told something else about these creatures around the throne, too. I quote John, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And again he says, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. But he's not done. And then they lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, 
You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and by your will they have been created and have their being. Revelation chapter 4 is a call to doxology. It's the summons of God's people to glorify the name of God with all that they are as they glory in Him. And so it's just the beginning of what will be in subsequent chapters a cascade of the outburst of joyous song at the wonder of who God is and what God has done and is doing and promises to do. But we're told something else a bit earlier that even adds to that idea. John says that the first living creature around the throne was like a lion, and the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle, and there's significance to those creatures. The Jewish rabbis taught that the mightiest among the birds, I'm quoting, is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest among the wild animals is the lion. And the mightiest of all is man. Here's the import. It's not just the weak and the helpless. The meek-hearted that are to lead the glory. It's the mighty ones, the leaders, the resourceful ones. They are the ones who call the whole assembly to praise. Again, is that true of you? A recent television interview of evangelist Billy Graham brought forth a question in which Dr. Graham was asked, what do you want people to say about you when you're gone? And the question came after a very impressive videotape montage of Graham's extraordinary career, amazing impact, and yet Dr. Graham's answer to the question was enormously telling. Why I don't want them saying anything about me. I want them to be talking about my Savior. That's a vision and a mission in life that's, that's too often out of fashion, even in Christian circles. As Oswald Chambers observed, we used to think that the chief end of man was to glorify God, but so often now we're tempted to say that the chief end of God is to gratify man. And the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, said that he feared that one of the most telling marks of a spiritually benighted world would be that although they knew God, in name, in word, 
they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Our job as Christians is to lead a revival of doxology in our culture, of glory giving. And it begins with our own lives and then extends to our witness in the world. In this regard, I think of the simple postscript that the great composer Johann Sebastian Bach used to put on his great works. He would often write at the bottom or sometimes even at the top before he started these three words, soli, deo, gloria. To God alone the glory. Glorify yourself through me. How can that understanding of God, that commitment to God, be a postscript and a superscript in our lives in the days to come? Could it be that that we'll rise in the morning with those three words on our lips? Oh, Lord, to you alone today be the glory through my life. Could it be that we might find more frequently the opportunity to tell another human being in our own simple way what we've seen God do in our life, what we owe Him? Is it possible that that more than in days past when the the light of, of the world's esteem shines upon us, we might find ways, as I was amused to see, the encouraged to see the quarterback of the Rams do just recently? Deflect the glory to the one who supplies the gifts. One thing is certain, the more our eyes are on the glory of God ourselves, then the more our heart and our soul, our mind and our strength will be seeking in all kinds of ways to magnify his name. For he is worthy. We know that. To receive glory and honor and power and praise. May it be so in our lives. Amen.